The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Welcome. This is Museum Life, and I'm Carol Bossert. And uh, we have a very exciting show for you today. The 9-11 Museum opened on May 11th of this past year. Uh, Its formal name is the National September 11th Memorial Museum at the World Trade Center. Uh, Most of my listeners, I'm sure, have heard about this, read about this. It has certainly generated over the years controversy, uh, news, and a variety of human reactions, as you can imagine. But, you know, projects like this just don't happen. They're developed and nurtured along the way by many people. And one of those people uh, is actually with us today, Tom Hennis. Tom uh, is the principal of Think Design, that's T-H-I-N-C, if you want to do a web search. Uh, It is an exhibition design firm he founded in 1995, based in New York City. And Tom is an extremely thoughtful uh, designer and practitioner, and is particularly interested in exploring the ways in which exhibitions and other media can be designed to form and sustain active communities. Prior to launching Think, Tom designed for theater and opera as well as corporate events and theme park attractions. And so he brings a wealth of experience and knowledge to our museum uh, projects. And Tom, welcome. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Carol. It's great to be here. Tom, could you give our listeners a little bit of background of how you became involved in the 9-11 project and what your role was? Sure. Uh, at the time uh, that the 9-11 Museum put an RFQ out on the street, a request for qualifications, uh, we had been working in South Africa on a project for a couple of years on the Freedom Park. This was in 2007, and uh, I had been one of those people who was very skeptical about uh, a museum being built so soon after the event, uh, particularly at a time when a lot of the American narrative about 9-11 was was very jingoistic and and uh, fairly narrowly focused. Uh, the project I was working on in South Africa had been a very broad-based, uh, multi-dimensional, uh, multi-perspectival uh, work of national reconciliation. 
And when I saw this RFQ, it was written in such a way that it, it made me think, wow, this is a chance to do something along these lines that, that brings multiple narratives into view um, in the United States. So I went after it, and it was a very long competition. It went on for a total of about six months. Um, but at the end of it, we came out with a project. Wow. And your, so your role was uh, just as, as, uh, as the design specialist for the, uh, for the job? Yes, officially uh, we are called the lead exhibition designer. There, there are more hands in that project than you can shake a stick at. But uh. Yes, uh, and I think we're going to get in, into some of those challenges in a bit. Uh, so I want to get back, uh, as you mentioned, this uh, the story narrative. Uh, of course, that is the, uh, uh, the thread or the spine that most of us uh Use to create these museum experiences, and this one was particularly uh, challenging for all of the obvious reasons. Uh, but I'm interested. Then you you said that the story narrative at uh, the time was relatively narrow, and it uh, it sounds as if it had it then expanded expanded enough to pique your your interest. So could you tell us a little bit more about how you worked with the client team to develop this story narrative? Yes, I I, I should be clear that the the, the the narrowness that I was referring to was the discourse in American society. When I first saw the RFQ, um, it it looked like the museum was actually pursuing a very different course, that they wanted to bring in multiple perspectives on the events, multiple American perspectives, and multiple international perspectives, and that one of the goals of the museum, it wasn't stated in this way, but we ultimately came to state it, would would be to to assist people in, in seeing through different eyes and thinking more flexibly about 9-11 and the, the consequences of 9-11. And, and that, that seemed to me to be a wonderful opportunity to use the museum as a way to facilitate dialogues that, that really didn't have many places to occur in, in society. Um, and I, I think that's a, that's a, a, a core potential of museums that 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 when you get a group of people together in a, in the same space a group a random group of strangers but some of them know each other some of them have come with each other some of them don't know each other to look at the same thing at the same time there's a potential for conversations to take place that don't otherwise take place and i thought that was a, a real potential with this project uh, over the course of time we 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 began to and really, we began at the beginning to um, to look not just at the event and the developing history of the event, but also at the people who would come to the museum and the many different perspectives that they might have on the event, ranging from people who felt completely alienated by it or New Yorkers who felt they didn't want to go near it or people who had been far away and felt the need to go deep into it so they could get a sense of what that experience was like to people who thought it was a, a government plot and it never really happened. Um, that, that each of these constituencies the, formed around a relationship to the events and a relationship to this history and a relationship to uh, the society that's emerging from it 
would have different needs, and the museum would need to be constructed in ways that would address those multiple needs simultaneously. It would somehow be personal enough for each of these very different types of user to be meaningful, but also be coherent enough that it wouldn't just overwhelm people and feel completely confusing. So much of the work over the course of the seven and a half years of development was trying to find a way to both bring these multiple narratives into juxtaposition with each other and provide a way through this that, that had enough support and enough guidance that, uh, that, that people didn't feel overwhelmed by the experience. I'm. I uh, thank you. That that's uh, that's very helpful, and I appreciate that clarification. And I want to delve a little bit deeper. And I know where this is going to, to be another thread that we uh, we talk about later in the program. But this idea of multiple perspectives, and you you did a good job of naming a variety of uh, of of people that were involved. And I'm of, of course there were also survivors. Uh, there were uh, uh, victims' families. There were all, all of the uh, yeah, all all of all of the people uh, uh, that that uh, that for which this this had uh, a huge impact, as well as uh, understanding that the museum is going to be a place that stands uh, over time, and that some of the visitors who are coming to the museum today would have been too young to have actually remembered those events directly. Uh, I think that's that is also probably something that you had to uh, to juggle. I, I'm wondering, though, can you give us a little more technical understanding of then how, so recognizing these multiple perspectives is one thing, but then actually hearing them and balancing them is another, and I, I think it would be helpful to understand a little bit more how, how you approach that. Sure. I... There are a couple of aspects of this that I think are, are very, very important. It, it is true that people have very different perspectives on the event, and and um, and I, I I went over some of those, and and you you also uh, describe sort of uh, different experiences based on proximity, based on whether somebody was in it or whether they had a relative who was in it, who survived or who died, um, and you know there so these very very personal connections to it. Also, the more distant uh, witnessing connections, or as you say, children who will have only experienced this through their parents' conversations uh, or through what they've seen in the media. Uh, but there are common points as well, um, and and we we ultimately decided that there were several threads that we needed to carry through the experience. Uh, one of those. Uh, was to recognize that even for people who were not yet born, this is this is an event that has immense impact on on all of our lives. Every time we get onto an airplane, every time we go through security, the the conflicts in the world that are ongoing, the uncertainty that children grow up in in this country and elsewhere that my generation didn't grow up with, uh, we. So, so this is an event that is, is pervasive in people's lives. So we wanted to provide a point of entry into the museum experience 
that the vast majority of people could identify with. And so that's where we ultimately decided that that narrative of first hearing about 9-11, where we were when we heard about it and what it felt like, was a, a very good point of entry for everyone to come into. Because as diverse as those experiences are, they fall into surprisingly predictable patterns. People had the same kind of disbelief whether they were standing on the street or whether they were far away. It was like a movie. The responses in many cases are almost stereotypic. And so those patterns of response that represent strangeness, disbelief, dawning awareness, coming to grips with what was actually happening, that's, that's, a, that's a common point of entry that, that virtually everybody can identify with. And it's important that the museum has those points that are, that are really commonly understood. That's very interesting, and and, uh, not to get us off topic, but as you were uh, explaining that point of entry, there are certain statements or questions that that define a generation. Uh, Our mine was, where were you when President Kennedy was was shot? And and it's a moment that uh, stands out in my young mind uh, extremely vividly uh, because uh, even though I didn't quite understand what was the gravity of the situation, I certainly knew as a a child that it was terribly important. And so I would would think that 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 too becomes a, a, a thread uh, through, through your narrative. Yes, and I, I, I had that same experience as a kid as well, and, uh, and, and that was certainly something that I brought to this. And, you know, people talk about Pearl Harbor um, in, a, in a lesser way, the, the Challenger explosion. So those, those points that everybody can kind of, or almost everybody can set their clock by, this is, this is certainly one of them. And uh, so giving that, that point of reference and allowing people to have a moment of identification, here's what my own memory is, to think about that, to be able to talk about that on the way in, to be able to go from that memory that has been brought up to uh, views of, of people witnessing on the streets, so coming closer to the events, to the first overlook, into the site of the museum. Uh, there's a, an overlook into Foundation Hall, which is a, an enormous uh, hall on the western edge of the site um, that has the last column in it, which was a, a well-known object and a, and a point of, of reference for many of the people who worked in the recovery. Um, that, that brings us to the here and now. The, where Here we are in the museum. Here we are. Uh, not then, not during the event, but today, whatever whatever date this is, in in a museum space that nonetheless has the duality of being the site of one of these attacks, and then then the procession moves deeper into the event. First of all, recollecting the towers themselves, that so you you pass by uh, the corner of one of the the volumes that uh, is the external cladding of one of the pools, the North Pool, uh, which is at the Memorial Plaza above, is is a depression in the ground, but from the museum it's actually a, a solid object exactly the size of that tower. Uh, 
past that and images of the towers and what that corner looked like when you looked up at it to the dedication plaque when the towers were built to remind you of what was there, to photographs of the towers before and after the event, to the first piece of steel you come to that's bent and mangled without much explanation. It's just there as a presence, to site of destruction, to images of missing posters, uh, to remember that, that people died, and then finally the descent to Bedrock, which is the main museum level, past a stairway known as the Survivor Stair that's been relocated to that part of the site that, that essentially poses a juxtaposition. On one side of you is this enormous wall with a remembrance, no day shall erase you from the memory of time, which speaks to the loss of life and this, this stair, which was known as the Survivor Stair because so many people used it as their, their last exit out of the towers. And so we have these, these kind of contradictions built in of life and death, of human memory and the place, of the construction of the place and the destruction. We begin to softly, gently, through visual cues, through tangible evidence, uh, build up uh, a series of memories that actually stand in paradoxical juxtaposition to each other the construction, the destruction, the, the place, the life, living, dying, these, these things that are all going to be ingredients of the story. And I think for, for any single person going through there, there will be points of reference to, that, that, are, that are stronger than others. You'll identify more strongly with one thing than others based on your own orientation to this, your own background, your own feelings about it. And so... Within this matrix of introductory objects and sensations, there's, a, there's, there's something to identify with, but there are also things that stand sort of contrapuntally adjacent to it to remind you that there are other aspects of this as well. And that's, that's a device that we use throughout the experience of bringing things into juxtaposition that we might consider to be polar opposites, but actually do coexist. They they're actually stand in paradoxical juxtaposition with each other. And I think transforming polarities, this can be either this or that, into paradox. Both of these things stand in the same space together somehow impossibly, and I have to somehow set myself in relation to them. I think that's a, that's a very important aspect of presenting a complex history and presenting... Uh, in, in a museum, uh, giving people a way to navigate through what what at first seemed to be confusing opposites and, and later can be seen as actually being coexistent, different views on the same thing. Thank you, Tom. That uh, that that's just a uh, an emotionally strong and uh, and and clearer uh, uh, explanation of the museum experience than what, what I have heard or read about in the past. So we are going to take a very short break and we will be back with Tom Hennis to talk more about uh, the 9-11 Museum as well as other design issues uh, of doing these complex projects. So you are listening to Museum Life with Carol Bossert and we will be back in a moment. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. What can you find on Get Real Radio? Well, quite honestly, who you really are. Join host James Robinson each week for a program designed to reveal more about yourself and your world through words of wisdom and profound guests. You'll discover more about the spiritual movement and how it can work with you and alert you to problems you may not be aware of. It will educate, titillate, and enlighten your mind. Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bosser at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. I'm Carol Bossert, and you're listening to Museum Life. And today I am talking with Tom Hennis, who was the chief designer behind the 9-11 Museum. And uh, Tom, before we went on break, you were giving us a very clear and vivid picture of the the narrative experience and how you used uh, seemingly opposites or juxtaposition. Uh, and I would, I might uh, uh, say, surprise uh, to help uh, uh, guess. Uh, traverse the uh, the experience and and make sense of it for for themselves. So um, and that was very helpful. But so beyond the obvious, I mean, you know, the obvious challenge of working with such charged and emotional subject matter. And it, uh, what was your your greatest challenge on the project, or 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 thing that uh, you know, this is where we were when we were doing the design drawings, and then this is how it really turned out. Can you give us some of those insights? Sure. I, I, I think one of the biggest challenges of this project, the, the, the central challenge is, is essentially titrating the experience, of make, making the experience of witnessing this bearable to people because 
the material is so charged and, the, and it is so powerful. There's there's no there's 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 none of what what we often have in different museum types of trying to bring the material to life. Some arcane subject. Um, this stuff is uh, paradoxically very very alive, and uh, and so the difficulty is presenting it in a way that isn't overwhelming. And I think one of the big tensions in the project uh, from from the beginning uh, really had to do with how vividly to make the presentation, how how much to do with the material. And in in, in the beginning, we kind of set ground rules, and this was driven as much by Michael Shulin, the creative director, and Alice Greenwald, the director, as it was by myself, that this was not going to be a sensory experience of 9-11. Um, we, we, we saw that movie, didn't much like it the first time, so we weren't, we weren't going to do that here. Instead, what I began to develop, and, and this was also in collaboration with a psychoanalyst by the name of Billy Pivnik that I brought onto our team to help understand how to make a museum without traumatizing people further, uh, we be, we began to separate the here and now from the there and then. So the museum experience, uh, the objects, the physical objects, are really about a first-person here and now experience. I am here in this place where this thing happened then. And the, the experience of then, we decided early on, would be conveyed through narrative, would be conveyed through images, through second-hand accounts. So my first-hand experience is in this museum on this site, seeing this object, maybe even touching it. My second-hand experience is the experience of the day related to me by people talking about their experience during the events. And this was a very important distinction that we made early on and tried to maintain throughout. It's almost as, I think, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's almost as if the challenge was buffering. Buffering is a really good word. And, and, and I think, so, that, so everybody started out on the same page. Um, and as the project developed, uh, constituencies formed around certain kinds of storytelling in certain areas. And as I said, there were there were many people who were part of the project. Um, and uh, the, for instance, the historical exhibition we did the concept, um, but but uh, the final design was was carried on by someone else. And as that went forward, I think it became uh, it became a much more vivid experience than than we had anticipated, and. That's, that that begins to uh, intermingle the here and now and the there and then, and I think that's 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 a that's a place where it it can get very confusing, and and I understand why it was done because there was a lot of uh, a, a lot of a lot of push within different con- constituencies to enliven the, the stories to bring more material into include more stories to 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 get more packed into that gallery uh, but I think also it it 
it's in danger of, of overwhelming people at times as well. Um, I think that's have, a very important point uh, that that it. Even in this project, there is the tendency, as with many museum uh, exhibition projects, to just want to put in more and more and more. And I, I would assume because of the, uh, uh, the nature of the subject matter, it was difficult to, uh, to really pull back on that, where, for instance, if you're talking about um, uh, Byzantine architecture, it might be a little easier for an education director to uh, uh, to bring bring that back into some perspective am i understanding that yes I, and i and i think it is it is legitimately difficult and and there there are legitimate differences of of view on how best to present some of this material um, and in many ways i think i think it's remarkable that the museum came out as as coherently as it did given that the Broad diversity of, of influential and and important opinion about about how things should should be presented, um, and I and I I say that without the slightest disrespect because I think I think as I said there there are genuinely legitimate differences as to as to how a museum like this should be constituted and and um, it was only by listening broadly to people and trying to incorporate what was essential in 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 these different perspectives recognizing that that sometimes a choice would have to be made in one direction or the other because they were contradictory requests um, but, but but nonetheless that it, it continued to move forward and and pulled into a, a pretty coherent piece of work um, so what are you most proud of? Do you have a specific example you can share? I'm I'm very pleased with with a couple of things. I I think the the entry sequence actually works very much the way I'd hoped it would. Um, it it gives you this. It really tells the full story without without any storytelling at all. It it conveys it. In a way that I think most people can understand, and it it is an extremely spare environment. There's a lot of space between each thing, and when I watch people going through it, I I think they're just kind of taking it in, and there's there's a lot to take in even with that spareness. So I think it's a it's a gentle way in. Uh, some people have criticized the the entry as being a little overwhelming, and and maybe it is. Um, uh, with it, with all of the voices speaking, other other people have, have praised it. So we probably got it about right. But I think that whole sequence is is pretty successful. Um, I'm also very pleased with the the uh, memorial exhibition in memoriam because that was a that was a very sensitive area for for all kinds of reasons, not least of which we really wanted to do justice to the process of grieving that that families were going through and the memories that they had of the people they lost as well as recognizing that the vast majority of people who would go through there didn't have those personal connections and yet somehow wanted to connect in some way with these people they'd never known and so the 
the development of that as a concentric, uh, it's square, but a square within a square, uh, structure that echoes the memorial fountains, but uses that structure in a very different way as the portraits of all of the people who were killed in the, the attacks, as well as the 93 bombing, uh, displayed on, in the outer perimeter, what we call the zone of the many, that gives a sense of the magnitude of the loss. And then the inner core, which is a storytelling space that focuses on individual stories told by family members, one after another, after another, after another, what we call the zone of the one, as the, the kind of sanctum within a sanctum within a sanctum that one of the family members asked for in in one of the many meetings that uh, that we attended and i think that I think that works quite well um, again it's been criticized in some way as being almost too personal, but i don't think it's quite honestly possible to be too personal uh, especially with an event that was this well documented with you know, people whose whose histories are known and whose absences are felt. Uh, for someone who doesn't want that experience, they they can go through the perimeter and just just take it in and go through. They can look in and pass it by, or they can go all the way into the core and sit for half an hour if they want. So, giving people that that choice and that 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 the ability to engage with it to the depth that they feel they want to and need to, I, I think actually works very well in an exhibition that, that, that could have been, um, you know, could have fallen too far on any number of any, uh, of, of any extremes. It, it sounds to me as if you, you did uh, uh, succeed in creating a very, uh, a very good balance of uh, between a museum and a memorial, uh, and I know that that was, uh, I'm sure, an issue that, that you have had to deal with and the museum still has to deal with, and it's not one or the other. It is this, as you say, juxtaposition is the perfect word uh, of, of having to, to deal with, uh, with, with these various issues. I, I'm curious. One of the challenges uh, in in my own work when I'm I'm creating a story narrative is how do you end it? Where do you end it? How did you uh, uh, you know uh, beyond just the memorial piece? What it, what is that closing statement? Well, it's it's that's a that's a that's a great question, and I and I have a, a kind of two sided answer to it. Uh, one of them is the, the there's 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 a very uh, outwardly turned ending and a very inwardly turned ending, and they they happen uh, kind of at opposite ends of the foundation hall, which is the the big space at the western end of the site that I mentioned. It's the first space you encounter from the ramp going down into the museum. The museum is seventy feet below ground. Uh, but it's also the last space you're in before you take the escalator back up to the entry concourse. It's just just below grade, and so it's it's the first thing you saw, and it's the last thing you see. And 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 that that's very very important because it gives us the opportunity to revisit and to reflect on on what we've seen, and 
centered in that is the last column, which was not only the last piece of steel removed from the site, but but a place where so many of the rescue workers and recovery workers wrote graffiti, wrote wrote remembrances to people that they had lost and, and to each other as a community that worked day and night for nine months on, on the clearing of the site. And so it's a very important center of community, and we, we set that object right at the beginning of the design process. So arrayed around that are a series of benches where people can collect themselves and talk, look at it, look at other things, look at some media pieces about what people did after 9-11. On, on one, one wall is what we call the timescape, which is a media piece uh, that was originally going to be an historical exhibition, but we moved it out here after we realized it was better suited in this hall. That uses an algorithm to plumb the Internet for the ch changing search terms and associations with the term 9-11 to look over time from 9-12 to the present day, whenever the present day is, to see how different things become associated with 9-11. So it's looking out to the world to see what the changing meaning of 9-11 is and trying to document that uh, you know, on a minute-to-minute -minute basis. Very, the, very, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, then at the other end, there's a, there's a place where you can sign your name and, and write a reflection uh, next to a piece of steel that's recumbent, a big bent piece of steel that, that, that we place near the last column, where that essentially stands in as a witness to us witnessing the site. And what we write there gets projected onto the concrete slurry wall, the base of the slurry wall, uh, on a map very similar to the map we saw when we came in with what people felt on 9-11. And it provides a kind of implicit narrative arc of wherever you were then, whatever you felt then, you're here now, and you're, you're part of this community that's now witnessed this thing. And you can leave a piece of yourself there. Whatever you write gets projected, it gets preserved. Um, and I think that's an important piece of closure for a lot of people to kind of say where they are right now and where, what they feel right now before they, they leave to kind of collect their thoughts. Very interesting. Thank you, Tom. We're going to take another short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Tom Hennis. You're listening to Museum Life. I'm Carol Bossert. Remember, you can always reach me at uh, carol.bossert at verizon.net and let me know what museum issues you think we should be discussing on the show. We'll be back in a moment. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. 
You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. I'm Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life. And I'm here with Tom Hennis. I'm continuing our conversation about the issues and challenges of designing uh, such a, a an important uh, museum and an important uh impactful issue of our times. And Tom, I'd like to sort of shift the conversation a little bit, if I might. Uh, It seems to me one of the other threads that followed through this project, we talked about it earlier with uh, the story narrative and the variety of voices uh, that uh, were were involved in developing that narrative, and it reminds me of one of the challenges I think of being uh, being in our business is the question of who really owns the story. Uh, I, you know, not only is is this a story that for many of us remains raw, but but there were so many people and so many perspectives, and you talked about how you ensured that all of the communities were involved and 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 heard. And one of the things that you had mentioned to me um, at break was this idea of co-creation. And so, could you talk about that a little bit more? Sure, uh, it it's really an important issue for museums of of many different types um, because we we're no longer in an era where I think we and I'm not sure we ever were but but it it certainly isn't tolerable to think that a museum has uh, some kind of intrinsic rightness about the narrative that it it chooses to put out there. Museums are really really influential um, people trust them 
a lot of people go to museums that may not remember the messages that a curator wants them to remember, but they form very, very strong impressions. There's a lot of evidence of that, and those impressions can last a lifetime. So we we have, I think, uh, a very important uh, responsibility to be thoughtful about what it is we're we're putting out there and 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 in particular to think about the way we're representing others uh, the 9/11 museum has a relatively empowered set of constituencies who who were involved with it and it would have been unthinkable to make this museum without without involving them very deeply and and even though not everybody felt entirely happy with the process for the most part, I think people did feel that they were listened to, and I and I know that those of us who created the museum made a tremendous effort to to listen to what was said and to change what we did in many occasions based on comments that people made and based on okay. not always consensus, but discussions that were had sometimes that didn't result in consensus, and even even when we couldn't satisfy one view that view altered what we did. Uh, for other museum kinds, uh, and particularly museums of ethnology, uh, history that, that don't have empowered communities, um, this becomes a real issue as to what the museum's relationship with those communities is and what its ethical responsibility is. In fact, what its, what its ethical standing is to actually tell those stories. Uh, can you give an example? Sure. We... Um, we we actually were we were working with the Royal Alberta Museum uh, for about a year and change on a history gallery and a natural history gallery in Edmonton, Alberta, and uh, we were beginning to work with indigenous communities there uh, through an informal process of consultation. The museum was, for reasons that are still not entirely clear, stalling on really reaching out fully to the, the, the many indigenous communities and first nations that are that are there uh, but as we as we began to work on the project uh, we began to see real opportunities for fully integrating an indigenous narrative into the telling of history and for bridging some boundaries that are that are that typically exist between history archaeology anthropology and creating a single gallery about human beings in this place with intertwining stories of history and identity and spirituality and culture. Um, and and we were uh, at summarily fired uh, in November of 2013 uh, without, without an explanation after uh, the museum began to shut down those, those discussions. Um, and that I've 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 made a number of public statements about this uh, with the press, so this isn't this isn't news, but it's it it raises for me a really important issue, which is if if a museum is unwilling to fully engage with the communities that it purports to represent, then does it have any legitimacy at all to even hold those objects or tell those stories in the first place? And uh, and I think that's a that's a really important question that the museum community has to come to grips with. 
I oh wow, Tom. Um, I'm so sorry to hear that um, uh, that that ended ended so so uh, so poorly. Um, it reminds me, though, of one of the challenges that uh, you you and I, um, uh, but but particularly uh, people who who run you know exhibit design firms, I think have have to grapple with, and that's the that's the practicality. Um, you know, talking. Uh, I, you mentioned that the 9-11 Museum took, you know, seven years. Um, most uh, museum exhibits, uh, that, that's a lot of time and, and, and it's a lot of money to, to uh, pay people to talk, uh, you know, listen to people, have all of these meetings, uh, do a design and review it with people. Uh, you know, I've often said uh, to my clients, don't ever evaluate something that you're not willing to change because that just you know, sort of sort of brings up, a, a, you know, creates a big mistrust. So how, how do you, as a, an exhibit designer, sort of navigate the, uh, this issue of, you know, the more people you get involved, the more time it's going to take? Yes, it's, it's, it's messy as hell. And, um, and in many ways, I think that reflects the fact that life and culture and the, all of the issues that, that become entrained in, in many of these exhibits are messy, and that there's there's trauma in history, there's joy in history, there's conflict, there's you know there's a, a whole spectrum of human experience, and I think it's I think it's important to evaluate as museums move beyond I hope a a colonial model where the the majority culture feels completely at liberty to tell the story of numerous minority cultures uh, without really involving them uh, in the storytelling. Uh, we have to recognize that this this isn't just an abstract uh, situation in which you know the, the museum does its own thing and it really doesn't affect anybody outside the museum. The fact is that it makes very strong impressions on people. The fact is that it promulgates myths about people, that it affirms or tears down prejudices, that it that it builds or or destroys bridges. And and I think I think museums play a significant role in the formation of ideas about who we are as as a, as people and who we identify with. And it's 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 an important part of making these exhibits today because we are now an interconnected world. We we can't exist without communication with each other. And moreover, um, we live poorer lives if we don't have access to each other's cultures. And so, yes, it's messier, and yes, it's slower, and yes, it's more difficult. But I think I think there are ways of doing it. In South Africa, we went on a we we, we did a, about a three year process of uh, pre design development of bringing in different constituencies and trying to understand how the stories interwove before we began to design and i i, I helped to build a South African design team who actually did the freedom park uh, exhibit design 
uh, we established a framework for it, and then they carried it forward. And I think it was very successful um, because it it incorporated multiple perspectives in its foundational view of of history. I think the nine eleven museum, yes, it took it took a while, and it was messy, and it was noisy, and it was raucous, but it was actually quite successful. Um, it did incorporate multiple views, and it's it's certainly an imperfect museum, but it's 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 the museum that we could build now. It's the museum that comes out of this time and and the perspectives that that are present in society today. It's it's not perfect. It's not complete. It's 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 none of those things. But in many ways, it may be the best museum we could have we could have done at the time, and it will improve over time because it is a kind of open system. So if we reconceive what a museum is about, not about telling a story to people who haven't heard it, uh, but about connecting disparate stories and opening ways of knowing to each other that, that, that it's not just for the community of users that we presuppose the urban, uh, educated, uh, generally white people who, who go to museums in, in this country anyway. It's not just for those people that the museum exists. It is also for the people who are represented, who's, who, who can help use the museum as a way to to reflect their own culture, reflect their own past, reflect their own stories. That a museum operates in multiple directions. That it's a it's a place where disparate communities can come together and understand each other better and understand themselves better in relation to other views, other uh, other ways of knowing the history. That's it's a very different vision of museum, but I think it's one that's much more relevant in the world we live in today. I think I agree with you very much and I'm reminded of uh, the the movement in science education to uh, incorporate uh, uh, indigenous ways of, of knowing uh, about the world around around you not necessarily always looking at something through a microscope but understanding a uh, understanding it through a little little bit different narrative and I think that you're you're saying the same thing you really paint a much more dynamic picture of a museum and perhaps if more of our institutions would embrace that museum wouldn't be such a a deadly name one of the things I have realized in the recent past is that it is almost a requirement that to get into a museum you have to be dead and (laughs) One one of the things that I think drives the depiction of of cultures in museums, particularly quote unquote indigenous cultures, uh, non Western cultures that are not not the cultures that built the museums, is the notion that they are about to become extinct, and somehow we have to preserve these this, this vision of of who these people were. That's a that's an outdated anthropological perspective, but I think it's still very near to the surface in the kind of work we do and to understand that these are thriving, vibrant communities that do, in fact, see the world through different eyes and that seeing the world through those different eyes can can give us greater access to human experience 
that's that's a wonderful way to think about a museum. And it's harder to do, to be sure, but I think it's a vastly more interesting and more real way to to present uh, history, culture, each other. And it's certainly more civic-minded. I think it is, and and I, and, I, and particularly today, where we are, we are in a world where it is it is very easy to to turn whole societies upside down at a at a moment's notice. Look what's happening in the Middle East at the moment. Look what's happening in you know all over the world. It's it understanding each other as human beings is a is a is a core mission that I think museums can can really carry quite beautifully. Yes, and it reminds me again of, of Gretchen Jennings talking about the empathetic museum. If we can learn to be more empathetic with each other, uh, I think things we, we can find our way out of some of the challenges that we face. Tom, I want to thank you so very much for your thoughtful uh, discussion today and uh, sharing with us uh, the development of the 9-11 Museum and, and, and how that's impacting your thinking of uh, museums in general. And thank you. It's been wonderful to talk to you today. Well, we will be back next week with another uh, uh, museum guest. Uh, Until then, this is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.